Welcome to Drinking Bros, presented by GhostBed.com. Sit back, relax, and grab a fucking drink. Coming to the stage, Mr. Jack Carr. How are you, sir? How are you, sir? Look at you. Welcome, welcome. What do you got for oh, us boy. here? Drinking Bros Podcast. Yeah. The, Drinking uh, Bros Podcast. The Jack Carr Warrior Proof Hooten Young Whiskey. Hooten from uh, Norm Hooten. From yeah, yeah. Grab that microphone, Jack. Thank Tell There we funny. go. Yeah, right Boom. Oh, yeah. What did he bring us here? Brand new bottle of hooch. There it is. The Jack Carr Warrior Proof American Whiskey. Look at that. Is that out now? That is out uh, tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Cheers. Look at you. New book, new whiskey. And it was random it came out that way because it's, uh, I guess with whiskey and stuff, you have to go through all these governmental regulations. Oh, we know. You do, absolutely. So you don't know exactly when it's coming out. It happened to land on tomorrow, which happens to be book launch day. Well, that's great. Congratulations. Look at you. Any other new surprises? New baby on the way? Oh, well, I hope not. Okay. (laughs) You never know know when I thought I'd ask. How's the volume back there in the back for everybody? Give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. There it is. Somebody there gave him go. a hollow. Somebody gave a little mid sign. Crank it up. Oh, yeah, give it the gladiator. There if, you, it is. if you say no, we'll end up killing the producer here. Of this, There it thing. is. There okay? it is. They just want to see somebody die at this point. I know. Hey, right now, Barnes & Noble staff members are looking at us like, like we're at J6 right now, <laughs> which is fair. That's Jack's <laughs> do you, audience. Do you, so. think, do you think Barnes & Noble listened to the podcast before they agreed I to this? I doubt it. There's I'm, no, they, no way they let us in I'm here. I'm pretty yeah. sure that they, they did yeah, not They either. did not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. No way they let us in here. Congratulations, <laughs> so, sir. Thank you, you got a new book out. How book? do you keep doing it? Well, it's uh, I don't sleep much, not getting any exercise whatsoever, and uh, drinking a lot, but not really eating anything nutritious. So those things, you know, the healthy things fell to the bottom of the priority list, and that's just kind of how it goes. So for you days. aspiring authors out there, that's the key yes. to success. Well, the key is, uh, so it's whiskey at night and coffee in the morning, and don't mix those up. When you start mixing those up and start putting the whiskey and bourbon in the morning and the coffee at night, that's when you know you're in trouble. So you're not Until on that, then, you're good. You're not on that Hunter Thompson... Not yet. Schedule. Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Give no. it two more years, Jack. Because at this pace, um, you're headed there. Oh, and I'll, I'll only say this because of the success you've had in the last year. The last time you were on the show was roughly two weeks before The Terminalist came out on Amazon. It is Amazon's number one show. It is the biggest hit they have ever had in the history of their network. Thank you. Crazy. Congratulations. Crazy. Appreciate that. Appreciate How much that. has your life changed since then? Well, I've always been busy. I mean, even since I was a little kid, I've never been bored. So when I hear something of my kids, like when they say I'm bored, I'm like, because mm. I've never, it's always been busy, always been doing something. Uh, I've never been without a book. My mom was a librarian, so I grew up with books and a love of reading. So I never can think of a time in my life when I didn't have a book and even when I didn't when I finished a book, when I was ever like, hey, what should I read next? No, I've always had one in the hopper for my entire life. So, uh, so yeah, I've never been bored. Which it sounds, when I hear that people are bored, there's so much opportunity, especially in this country. There's really no excuse to be bored, I don't think. We can do so much. There's so many things we can do. Yeah, but with a, a massive hit like this, people want more of your time. Uh, not only TV-wise, yeah. uh, but then your agent starts calling and he says, hey, Jack, can you take this one conversation because it's really important and it'll help your career? And then it keeps snowballing every single day. And then a new book like this usually falls by the wayside. How did you avoid that trap on this one? 
Uh, just juggling, juggling, just more juggling. Uh, there is a lot of that, but nowadays it doesn't really come from agents because back, let's say 1985, how are you going to get in touch with somebody? Like very difficult. You had to go mm-hmm. through certain, uh, you know, there were blockers in the way, protectors in the way. Now it's just reach out on social media. Then all of a sudden someone puts you on a text str- th- string with, as you guys know, like 15, 20 people on there and only one of them, maybe two of them are attached to your contacts. You're like, who are all these people? And then someone hits you up and it's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of incoming. There is. A lot of incoming. A lot of incoming. And then I'm sure your publisher was like, hey, are you still on schedule? Those calls had to have been rolling in. They're very understanding. My publisher, I can't say enough great things about. So it's Simon & Schuster, Atria, Emily Bessler Books. They are so understanding. My my deadlines get a little bit uh, soft, I guess you'd say, because for me, it's all about the book. And it's not about all of a sudden getting to 100,000 words and then saying, oh, time to wrap this thing up. Or who, I got a deadline looming in two weeks. I got to wrap this thing up. If I have to push a publication date or anything like that, I will always do that because it is about the story and people are trusting me with their time. They're never going to get back. So I'm never going to rush to end just because I have things going on. It's always 100% about that story. It's not about reading reviews and saying, oh, what do people like? What do they dislike? Maybe I can put this in next time. And Simon and & Schuster and my agent, they have never once even hinted that I should change something up or go a little softer over here, add this or worry about alienating somebody over here. They have given me complete creative control, which is awesome. Uh, so I've never felt that kind of pressure, which allows me to make it all about the story and put my whole heart and soul into every single word. Uh, now, screenwriting on that side of the house, much more collaborative. Sure, that is yeah. a team game right there. That is a team effort. And you have a showrunner, you have a writer's room, you have a number two in the writer's room. You put things all the way up the chain to the top of Amazon and then all the way back down with notes to either then incorporate or argue and then keep going forward. So very collaborative, everything from titles ever, all the way through the into all the scripts and then of course you go into other deals for spinoffs and, and next seasons and that sort of thing so much more collaborative are you teasing us right now about new seasons and spinoffs yeah so the spinoff is the next one it's everything's on pause right now because of the writer strike that uh, you may have heard of so we'll see how how far that pushes things to the right but we're about uh, episode uh, as far as scripts go five out of seven for this spinoff series with uh, if you remember the Taylor Kitsch if anybody saw the uh, the show so ben, Taylor yeah. Kitsch played the character Ben Edwards and that's one of the characters I think was much more fully developed in the script and then on the screen with what Taylor brought to it than it was in that first novel so we saw that and thought oh spinoff for sure with Taylor and go back in time and do an origin story and show how he went from the SEAL teams to the CIA and build this international espionage thriller rather than a action thriller, conspiracy thriller, revenge thriller like the terminal list. So we're in the middle of those scripts. We'll 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 get back into the middle of them when the writer strike is sure. over. But what about Rafe? Good. Everybody asks Everybody about asks Rafe. about Rafe. Yeah. You could play Rafe. That would be pretty good. Let's I never do thought it. about that until just now. I don't know Let's if I can do, do a it. South African accent. We just gotta work on it a little bit. Yeah, we'll he's got a good little coaching. <laughs> but that's the question I get more than anything else. Yeah, People who is gonna play Rafe and I get that all the time. And uh, so I never say who I think should play, but we have a short list and uh, we're figuring that out right now. But I've gotten that since like day one. Who's gonna play Rafe? Well, he's the second Rafe? most important character in the series, right? In yeah, my opinion. He, and I did that very intentionally, and I made made his his uncle, his father, his grandfather. Uh, interesting as well, even if it was just a paragraph here or a paragraph there. So it gave me options to go back and explore with either a series or another book at some point. So people are very interested in that uh, yeah. that family lineage. And I did the same thing with James Reese with his dad and his grandfather so I could go back and have something to write about and explore the post-World War II years and then the Vietnam years and post-Vietnam years and then with James Reese today. So I did that very intentionally. Yeah, I like how after, I guess it started kind of in the third book, you started to weave a lot of historical fiction into mm-hmm. stuff, which I I enjoy that. I always like historical fiction. It's, it, I think it keeps people really engaged. 
Again, I've been just interested in history since my earliest days, so I do that. And I have a nonfiction. My first nonfiction comes out in a year and a half, and it's um, uh, it's called the targeted the targeted series. But the first book is on the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. So there's some newly declassified documents from the Reagan administration mm-hmm. that talk about who is advocating to put Marines ashore in Beirut, who wanted to keep them on amphibs in the Med, how that decision was made. And when I announced that I was doing this series, Michael Reagan reached out to me and said that that decision to put Marines ashore in Beirut in Lebanon, haunted his father till the day he died. Um, so there's, there's that piece. There was the uh, bombing of the American embassy in April of 1983 in Beirut. So that's kind of a lead-in. And then we have what's going on in the Oval Office. And then, of course, the October attack that killed more Marines uh, in a single day since World War II, Iwo Jima. And then there's, a little, there's an end to it. There's a, uh, the mastermind, and I don't like that word too much. So the planner of that attack, he uh, ended up being number two at Hezbollah, number one of their militant wing. And he ended up being killed in a targeted assassination in 2008 in Damascus, Syria, and no intelligence service has ever claimed responsibility for that targeted assassination. So it was probably a, a Mossad proxy force mm-hmm. and with some technical intelligence from the CIA, but that's kind of the in- investigative journalism side of it. So working on that with a historian and uh, Pulitzer Prize finalist, James Scott, who has five books out there right now, most of them World War II, amazing guy. So we're doing that research, and the first nonfiction one comes out here in about a year and a half. Congratulations. Yeah. It's, it's definitely going to be a challenge. Uh, and quite a departure, obviously, because when you are doing nonfiction, if you get it wrong, people will be after you forever and point out facts over and over. You, you missed this. You missed this. That oh, yeah. date's not right. That person didn't exist. Yep. Um, what's the team look like behind the scenes uh, that's working with you? How many people total, you think? Whew. Well, there's uh, there's not much of a team team, and there was zero at the beginning except for me. And now for this one, it's just me and James Scott. I'm just an amazing guy. I couldn't have a better better partner in this. Um, and we want to do it in a way that's so that's thoughtful and respectful. Uh, a lot of family members are still alive who lost their their child, essentially, or their son in this attack. Uh, there are people who would duck, tried to dig their friends out of that rubble. They're still alive today, still dealing with that all these years later. So so it had multi-generational um, uh, impacts. And so we want to do a thoughtful job and really do our due diligence to make sure we get this right in a way that's respectful for those people who were trying to dig their friends out of that rubble back in sure. 1983. So, um, but behind the scenes, yeah, it was me and James. Uh, James a year Scott and a half on that is one. ambitious for just two people. Those interviews are lengthy. Yeah, we've been working on it for six months already. Oh, you so, have? Okay. Yeah, okay, so great. doing that. And then uh, my, I, when I pitched it to Simon & Schuster, I said, hey, it's going to be one a year in this targeted mm-hmm. series. I'll explore a different terrorist event every year. And then as soon as we got into the research, I realized it's going to be an every two-year thing. So mm-hmm. I called up Simon & Schuster and said, I know the contract says every year, but it's going to be every two years to do this right. And, of course, that was, that was well, no you, problem. So you said, I understand uh, people are still alive from that incident, you know, but... It seems unlikely people are still alive, and if they are, they won't be much longer who were directly involved in the JFK assassination. Right, yeah. we still can't get those documents released for some reason. Crazy, and I, will, I don't want to give too much away, but there, I weave a little bit of that into this mm. book in a way that uh, probably no one's going to guess until they actually read it. But going back to those specifics, I mean, early 90s, a mandate by Congress, so essentially a law, Mm -hmm. to release the remaining documents, and we have two administrations from two different parties that all of a sudden, essentially on the eve of declassifying these documents, get a little visit from the CIA, and then all of a sudden the next day, we get a little something, but not all the documents as mandated by law, and if, so, I mean, maybe the CIA was not involved in this, okay, fine, but if they weren't, they're sure going way out of their way to make themselves look guilty. Yeah. That's yeah. very odd. Yeah, it is odd. Maybe it's like, uh, 
There was an episode of South Park one time where all... <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like the JFK assassination in South Park in well, the same it, it, sentence. It was during uh, the conspiracy about stealing elections and stuff, and they wanted people to believe that they had that power, even though they didn't actually have that power. So maybe the CIA is just, they've effed up so yeah. many things that they want people to still think they're competent. Maybe that's it. It could be. You know I mean, I mean, you got to, you know, you know kind of like look at not. the situation and then kind of, you know, spin it to your advantage, yeah. I guess. But, um, but yeah, RFK has been on TV recently mm-hmm. talking about what, uh, what his beliefs and what happened there. And well, he uh, came out and blatantly said the yeah. CIA killed recently JFK yeah. about a week ago. I know it's pretty wild. And uh, I haven't read his latest book, but I did get to meet him a couple years ago. A friend of mine married into the, uh, the, uh, the Kennedy family, and it actually inspired an early chapter in this book for anybody who's, who's read it uh, thus far, who's got, got to that part in, in part one here. Uh, and being in that house, being with him, being with Ethel Kennedy, spending time with her, having a breakfast with her at a table with just us. I mean, it was really moving to be there. And then to see this chair, like, like one of these, and you're in that house, and you look, and you see the chair, and then you see a little table table next to it and on that in that table is a picture of JFK watching the election results come in for his election and it's the same chair and so it's the chair and a picture of him in that chair right there and it was just really moving experience to be there and spend some time with Ethel Kennedy and for those who have read the uh the book or when you do read it there's a you'll know the chapter when I when you get there so what do you think happened uh, well, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say it because it's in this book. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. But you are gonna say it in the uh, book. At least. It's in the book. Okay, yeah. we're gonna hold you to. And that. you can go to the author's note if you want to cheat and get to, get to the end. Uh, Was it aliens? Does this turn into like? <laughs> Dang a, it! Does it turn into Dang a sci-fi it. series right now? Uh, there has, isn't the alien stuff crazy? Imagine if this alien stuff, like in front of Congress, people testify. Imagine that happened in 1985 or 1990 oh, yeah. or something like that. And now people are like, "Oh, aliens? Huh, no big deal." And then they go back to TikTok. You know, Nobody cares. So, no, it's Nobody crazy. Cares. It's crazy. Now, regarding your friend uh, who's in the Kennedy family, I can think of one person off the top of my head. He might have been the lead of the terminal list. Was it that friend? No. Uh, he's he married a buddy, in. Buddy, <laughs> different friend before that, so before I got out of the military. Well, right when I got out of the military. Um, so, yeah, buddy, who's a Marine, and uh, you know, we spent some time downrange together in Najaf. We didn't know each other at the time, but we are in the same battle in Najaf in, in uh, 2004, August of 2004, to retake that city from the Jaysh al-Mahdi militia, and then we met a year later, and we'd both been there fighting in the same spot, so we... Bonded over that and have been buddies ever since. Good times at Jay Shalmati, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Were, you, were you guys in a job? Were you in a job? I was in uh, 82nd in uh, Solder City for about okay. a year and a half, yeah. I yeah. served at uh, Olive Garden through most of high school, yeah. and that was, that was hell as well. That is tough. That was hell. Good, yeah. good, good breadsticks. Yeah. Good breadsticks. Well, Very good. They yeah. actually, no they one was on the honor system with that yeah. Chianti. Solid. No they had, one. They ran out of breadsticks one time, and that was their Fallujah, oh. you know. <laughs> oh, I sure was. Completely. I didn't think I was going to get out of there alive. We're lucky I'm here today. Thank you for your time. Play the Lee Greenwood. <laughs> Proud to be an American. Play it, play it, play it. There it is. But uh, yeah, but anyway, so, so Najaf was an interesting place because it was uh, it was like, like a campaign day, night. Uh, it was two weeks, but we were there for eleven days of it with my sniper team. And uh, I mean, it was, it was like I went, when I was running through those streets in the heat of the day, looking around. I was like, this is like the World War II movies that I saw. It was the only time because usually we chose the time and place sure, of yeah. our engagements, and you build up a target package, and it's kind of like putting together like a mafia crime family or something, and so and so is attached to so and so, and here's the trigger to go get this guy who's attached to this person, and we need to talk to them, so try not to kill them. Uh, that sort of a deal. But for Najaf, it was like take 
take this city. We've given them two weeks to get for everybody to get out of there. Jay Shalmati militia is holding this thing. So Muqtada al-Sadr's militia. And then it was just go from a certain date. And they knew the date. And we knew the date because they said, get out of here by this date if you're not part of this militia. And it was just a two-week campaign. And you pushed them towards this uh, Imam Ali Mosque in downtown Old Town, uh, Najaf. And uh, it was pretty dynamic. Pretty yeah. uh, pretty good time. Now al-Sadr is this close to being prime minister. So It's that's so great. crazy. because we, we And uh, by the end of that, we had pushed them back day by day, week by week, and we'd go through the streets and do that, you know, whatever we're doing, and move up the Bradleys and the Abrams and all that sort of thing as a mayor coming in. And we had a ton of these guys in in the mosque, uh, but that's where they retreated to at yeah. the end. So they're essentially safe there in that mosque. It's base. And it's, yeah, home base, kind of like, tag, I got man. to base. Yeah. And then, uh, then there was some sort of a peace treaty done with the government, and they came out and gave their weapons to the, uh, I think it was like the Iraqi National Guard at the time. So essentially, they just lived to fight another day. But uh, it was an interesting time, and all that stuff finds its way into the pages of the novels. Mostly the feelings and emotions behind it, not sure, necessarily yeah. exactly what happened. You no, know, I like I, that's one of the things I like most about your books. I read a lot of different series, Greeny and and yeah. the Mitch Rapp series and stuff. We've talked about this before, mm-hmm. but yours, I, I think you're the only person out there that's actually done this stuff that's mm-hmm. writing about it. Thank you, and that gets stood out to Simon and Schuster because they see thousands of these things each year, and uh, for me, so I don't have to go and find a sniper from Ramadi in 2006 or I don't have to go to find somebody who's been in an ambush before and then ask them questions and then have their answers get filtered through other interviews I've done, research that I've done, movies I've seen, documentaries I've watched. I can just take that feeling for what it was like to be in an ambush in Baghdad 2006 and then apply that directly to a fictional narrative. So if James Reese gets ambushed in Los Angeles, California, I just go back to remember what it was like in Iraq and then I take those and apply them directly without a filter right into the pages. So, um, so I think if people read it and think, oh my gosh, this feels real. It's because the emotions and the feelings are real. The story's totally made up, but the feelings and emotions are real. Yeah. Is it yeah. cathartic writing that? Oh um, yeah. Because it's almost like uh, not paying for a therapist. You can kind of <laughs> just write it out on the page exactly. and then maybe get rid of it. Exactly. No, it's very therapeutic. All of them. And I didn't realize that until I started the first one. First one, I, I title, a theme, a one-page executive summary, an outline, and even through all that, I didn't realize how personal it was going to be until I wrote the first sentence, and then I realized, oh, this is going to be a much more personal writing experience than I anticipated, and all of them have been that way to date for different reasons, Uh, some of which are seeing us leave Afghanistan after 20 years of being able to prepare for that withdrawal and having it go the way it did, and to have no senior-level leaders held accountable in any way like they would have been during the Civil War or during World War II or Lincoln and in Civil War, got through a lot of generals before he got to Grant. Uh, same thing with George Marshall in World War II, got through a lot of generals and admirals before he got to the ones whose names we all know who led us to victory in World War II. And something happened in 1947 where we did a reorganization of the intelligence services and the military, and for some reason after that, accountability essentially fell by the wayside. And you cannot really point to very many instances of any senior military leaders being held accountable for their actions. Well, I think Eisenhower gave a speech about all this. He right? did. He did. And people should watch the whole thing. Not just, I mean, it's great, the military-industrial complex yeah, portion yeah. of that, those 10 seconds. But if you go watch the whole speech, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I highly recommend people watch that whole speech, which you can find on, on YouTube. Yeah. 
Uh, do you think America trusts the CIA and the government today as much as they did before? I mean, they are doing such a good job of undercutting that trust. <laughs> I mean, you almost couldn't do a better job if you were trying to. So, I mean, with the 51 people coming out and saying, uh, signing this thing about the laptop and all that stuff, there, there's one FBI time and time again. Well, you know, and then John it goes Durham just down. put out a statement today that the Russia hoax investigation never should have happened in the first place. That's not great. When your lead prosecutor comes out and says that. Two that was two hours ago. They yeah. just got released. Uh, they admit the, the CIA overreached and the FBI overreached in uh, trying to go after Trump ties with Russia. Yeah. Uh, even CNN was forced to cover that today, <laughs> which was fun. Yeah. Um, but when you constantly hear stories like this, and I'll go back to the, the JFK thing earlier, uh, I had read most of the, the documents that Trump released, uh, you know, the first batch before yeah. he was stopped from releasing the second. It, I think it was midnight's. A lot of redactions in there, but also a lot of stuff about the government we learned that I just didn't think existed, uh, especially in regards to Martin Luther King, uh, into planting bombs potentially in Florida to make it look like communists were coming from Cuba. Oh, wow. Me personally, I just couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that the government could do this to its own citizens. Uh, how do you take that into account as you continue to write? Yeah, well, they give me a lot to work with. They certainly <laughs> give me a lot to work with. And uh, once again, therapeutic in that my protagonist can take care of some of these guys and hold them accountable in a way that if uh, a citizen did, we'd end up uh, in prison for the rest of our lives or on, on death row. So it's, it's very therapeutic. But we can go back in the pages of history. So people think for some reason, all of a sudden, after the, the church hearings or the Pike committees and a reorganization in the 70s of our intelligence agencies, particularly the CIA, that all of a sudden, yeah, they wouldn't do anything that's an overreach going forward. We had these hearings and they did a reorganization. Uh, well, yeah, just go back in those pages and really, that first book essentially very influenced by those hearings and, and so is this one right here. So is this, this newest one. But uh, go back in those hearings and read them and then uh, for me, looking at time, how much time has passed since the mid-70s, late-70s, and thinking, well, what if somebody didn't get that memo? And it would, would it be possible for somebody at the, at the CIA or somebody at these senior levels of our intelligence services to, uh, to bypass some of those um, uh, barriers that were put in place to keep some of those things from happening again? And some of those things were directly related to that first book, pr primarily the testing of drugs on people in mental institutions, people in uh, universities, prisoners, people in our prison system, and Members of the military and some of the some of the fallout from that, like uh, Ted Kaczynski, for example, oh, was part of MK Ultra. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I did not As realize a 16 that. Sixteen-year-old at Harvard. Yeah. No yeah. way. Yeah, I did so not that's, know that's that. Dope, right? Yeah, I put some of that into the last book. I think mm -hmm. MK Ultra made it into the last yeah. book. Uh, so it's fun to do the research for these things too, because uh, a lot of it I've heard about here or there. I think I have an understanding of, and these books allow me to go and do a deep dive. Uh, last one going into the artificial intelligence side of the house, quantum computing side of the house. Uh, so that was uh, and. It this is more being an investigative journalist because I have no touch points with that in my personal life or my time in the military, except for what movies I've, I've seen. So when I go out there and try to track down people who have worked in the intelligence establishment and worked in quantum computing and AI, and then you talk to them and have an interview and they leave a little something out, well, they leave a lot of things out, mm -hmm. but they maybe give you a little breadcrumb uh, because it's all classified. So then, but if you talk to 20 people, they all do that, but they all leave you a little something. Mm -hmm. So you kind of get to weave this tapestry together, put this puzzle together. So for the last book, I'd be shocked if the uh, facility that I described in San Antonio isn't almost exactly as described. And same thing with the book before that, Devil's Hand, where I go into the bioweapons research with the government terms biodefense research, um, if it wasn't exactly the same way I described in the book. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, Dan and I were talking about this in the studio earlier. It seems like in your writing, you're almost predicting the future. You've written about AI. 
You've written about a pandemic. Well, I mean, so the 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 book about a, a, a pandemic released or a virus released in the United States came out the same year the COVID yeah. began. So I think maybe you know more than you're saying you know. Well, some of these things aren't too difficult to predict. Sure, um, fair enough. Yeah. Is Fauci uh, here? <laughs> I mean, how did you know? But how did you know about the here? pandemic or on that, the year? Or is that little guy? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, it started with looking at the United States through the eyes of the enemy. So mm-hmm. broadly speaking, and that was the summer of 2019. So when yeah. I started that Just one, doing so cell, yeah. I wanted to yeah, exactly. So I wanted to look if I was the enemy, meaning if I was Russia, uh, Iran, China, North Korea, super empowered individual, a terrorist organization. What would I have learned by watching the United States on the field of battle for the last 20 years, and what would I have applied to my future battle plan? So that's how it started. And I was thinking tactically at the time. I was thinking specific Iraq, Afghanistan, what would you have drawn? And then we get into early uh, 2020 and COVID hits. So me being in the shoes of the enemy, essentially looking at us through their eyes, I thought, well, well, they're certainly learning something from our response to COVID. What would I do? and What would I incorporate into my battle plans if I was watching the U.S.'s response to COVID? And then we hit a summer of uh, civil unrest. Uh, And uh, of course, looking at that through the eyes of the enemy, they're not just watching that and walking on by and going about their day they're figuring out how to exploit this division and then we hit a very contentious political season once again so all of that ended up very naturally working its way into the devil's hand because that's the position i put myself in for for two years was looking at us through the eyes of the enemy well now let's look at ai um you mentioned the writer's strike earlier one of the biggest sticking points in the writer's strike is ai in the use of ai and you mentioned the writers that are working on uh, the terminal list on Amazon. A lot of these writers' rooms are at 20. They want to pare that down to four to six. Use mm. AI to help with the storylines, help with the structure, and then have these four to six writers use them. Uh, a lot of writers are fighting for if my scripts or my book gets sucked up into AI and is used in the future, I want residuals for that. Where do you land as far as AI and the use of it goes in the future, not only for your writing, but for other authors. Yeah, so the, the writer strike has been building for a while, and originally it was more focused. This is my understanding of it. I'm very new to this, uh, f- just for everyone, so that's the caveat. But uh, the streaming part of it was really what has been building for a long time since the last writer strike, the streaming services and how that works. Uh, really needed some restructuring when it comes to writers sure. and how The residuals are quite a bit different. So, yes. that's, you think, so yeah, big big change yeah. since the last writer strike, and it has, hadn't been addressed. Mm-hmm. So, so that was building, and then all of a sudden, over the last few months, AI hits. And so now that becomes a big, huge focus of this writer strike and from your if you're a corporate executive and you're looking at profits and shareholders and and uh, having to show more profits each quarter uh ai would look attractive to you like hey we don't need these 10 writers here we just tell this machine to write us a story about six friends in new york in a coffee shop go type thing and you have friends um and it look that looks more, a lot more attractive to them than having all these writers who have these deals that you have to take time and then there's money and expense and all the rest of it but uh so that's a huge huge part of this writer strike. So it's going to have to come to some sort of a, of a resolution here. Uh, and right now you can tell the difference. Somebody sent me in January, uh, they sent me because of my last book, they sent me a chapter that they told chat GPT to write. They said, write the first chapter in the next Jack Carr novel go. And, uh, I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't horrible. And it was something that you could morph and their names were wrong. I mean, it wasn't great, but in five years it might be perfect. So it's a, it's a, I mean, it, it's a tough one, but so I think this will be the first 
unionized effort to address AI, and we'll see it with with truck drivers. We'll see it with a, a whole host of other industries. I think going forward, because it's not now about could we or should we. It's out there, and now it's how do you manage it? Yeah, and the scariest thing is that one of our producers brought this up on a previous episode was because uh, I said the same thing. I said Chat GPT will never be able to write thoughts, feelings, all that other stuff. And I said, hey, we're about four months in. Uh, and then, like you said, somebody spit out the first chapter, and you're like, yeah. all right, it's bad, but imagine six months. Imagine yeah. a year, three years, yeah. five years. Will we be there? And I think that's what Hollywood, especially the studios, is trying to protect is the right of what is going to happen in five years because they've all missed it. Technology yeah. has moved so fast. We used to shoot on f- film, just straight-up film 20 years ago. And that moved into digital. Then we had DVDs. Then we had Blu-rays. All of that has slowly been eliminated. Now we're into streaming. Then we get into AI. And you mentioned TikTok. God forbid uh, you make a kid watch something over 30 seconds these days. <sighs> they lose their mind. Yep. So I, I think it's trying to figure that out with a delicate balance. And I don't know what the answer is. Yep. Um, and I think this writer strike will go on for quite a while. And the reason why I bring this up is... It makes me sad because I want to see season two. Thank of you. The Terminalist. Thank you. Thank you. Chris has already signed on, correct? Yep, yep, correct. And it's, you know, anything in Hollywood can go off the rails at any point. So I always, you know, uh, but uh, right now being this far into this spinoff series with Taylor and then Chris is in a few of those episodes as well. And then we're going to roll that right into uh, True Believer, which is the second novel and uh, start writing those and Chris Pratt stars in those. So uh, then from there, we'll see, I guess, see how they do and see where it goes from there. But uh, I learned so much over this last year on that screen writing side of the house and that's really just because Chris wanted me involved Antoine wanted me involved they introduced me to the showrunner who was like a, like a director in a feature but on series television you have a showrunner because you're juggling multiple directors so he's like the singular point of contact for the show David DeGilio amazing guy but to be there from optioning it to meeting the showrunner to writing the pilot or him writing it and me just advising on it but me learning and then uh, putting the writers room together advising on all those going into the casting then going into production and then post production and then the marketing and the lead up and then the premiere and then the deals afterward for a spinoff and a second season. I've just been on a sponge, just been on, yeah. just learning so much over this last few years. It seems like there, you guys spent a lot of time, maybe, I don't know whose influence it was. Antoine's really good at doing this in action films and, and, awesome. and shit as well. But uh, there, was a, there was a particular notice paid to violence of action, right? Like brutal scenes, the EFP scene, for example, mm-hmm. just absolutely brutal. You don't see that too much and move, everything seems to get a little watered down these yeah. days, but I really enjoyed that. I mean, uh, it, it's, it rang really true to me. Thank you, and I'm glad. Uh, let's see, anybody from the ATF here? No? Oh, good. Um, because I think we, I mean, we really built... Uh, they're knocking uh, on people's doors <laughs> trying to take their guns. Yeah, they're busy. They're busy right now. And shooting dogs. Uh, and yeah, they, yeah, Barnes & Noble was their last stop on that. <laughs> but... Uh, but yeah, we essentially built an EFP. Like that was a real deal downtown Los Angeles, middle of the day. Yeah. And, uh, and some people you couldn't move for some of those scenes. Like you had homeless people on the street. You tried to, you know, just like usher them, kind of get them, you know, give them some water or some food and that sort of thing. Some people just, you couldn't move. So we had to light that thing off with, you know, a few people that may have been a little too close. And that's just kind of how it goes. But uh, for Chris and Antoine, the... Uh, <laughs> you said that so casually. Well, yeah. Everybody around him was like, are they died? Did the homeless people die? <laughs> No, they just got, they just woke up or, you know. They, okay. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you, do, you do the best you can. You know, sure. you're, you're on location. You're doing these things. You're doing the best you can. But uh, so for that and for Chris and Antoine, it was so important for us to make a show 
for somebody who had been downrange to Iraq and Afghanistan. So when they sat down on a couch at the end of the day and they cracked a beer and they turned this thing on, that at least they'd know we put in the effort mm. to keep this thing rooted in the realities of modern warfare, modern combat, uh, the mindset of a modern warrior. And uh, for, for Chris and Antoine and the showrunner, they trusted then my buddy Jared Shaw, who played Boozer in the series, a SEAL with me. Uh, he was there every day. Max Adams, former Army Ranger, a writer in Hollywood, uh, amazing guy. He was there every day. Ray Mendoza, another SEAL, SEAL buddy of mine, uh, he was a technical advisor. He was there every day. So those three guys were there every day. And then you have this essentially executive produce, production leadership team trusting them. So if one of those guys said, nope, we, we can't do this, that no one, no one who went down range who's watching this show will ever believe this, we're going to lose the audience. We're going to lose those guys. Because it wasn't like audience, audience. It was those people who we were concerned about, not with critics, not with anybody else. We're concerned about that person who went down range. And uh, they change it. They reshoot it. They change the script. They morph it. Because of those, what those guys say. Yeah, it's hard to watch somebody uh, walk into a room with a nine mil and just take two headshots and move on with their day. It's like, no, we shoot people down. Yeah, until they stop. Exactly. Moving, you know yeah, I mean? it's Put just like down. Not, it, not to be. I, I didn't get a sense that it was gratuitous either. It Thank was you. very natural. Very natural. Yeah. And there was this one scene we got to the end, and so I was doing that the post production side of the house in that last episode. And uh, there's this point where Chris Pratt's in this hallway, and uh, he has to get in to see, get to the Secretary of Defense. And there's a lock on the door, and there's one of the bad guys there, and he makes him open it. Mm. And then how we shot it was then Chris. I wasn't there that day. Uh, moves to this guy moves to the side, and Chris enters the room, and then the next scene starts. Mm. And I saw that in post-production. I'm like, and halt. Nope. Yeah. This guy is now a threat. And he like drops it, does the drop the gun thing. And then Chris moves past him. I'm like, this guy can just pick this thing up and shoot yeah, Chris yeah. in the back. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so we added Chris moves, Chris walks up and then you hear the two shots. Tadoosh. So I'm like, there we go. That's it. Now you've done it. So, so those little things, those little details like that were extremely important to, to everybody involved. Yeah. And what's also cool about being on set is that people came up to me, and they didn't have to come up to me, but they told me that they'd been on hundreds of sets in Hollywood, and never have they felt the way they felt on this one. That's all due to Chris Pratt, Antoine Fuqua at the top, setting the tone for the entire production, and just making people want to be there and be the best, do the best they possibly could at their specific job. And uh, that was pretty cool because no one had to, had to do that. And uh, I can see how it could go the other way too. If you had like a crazy director, a crazy number one on the call sheet, everybody would be like, oh man, I got to go work and deal with this person today. Crazy, insane. But uh, for this set, it was just a really cool feeling every time I was there. Is Taylor Kitsch as good looking in real life? Because he's a hometown hero. That here guy. In that Friday guy. Night Lights, the lead of Friday Night Lights. Well, I was just texting him on the way uh, on the way here last night when we got in from the airport. And he's, Did your uh, wife, when you started working on the project, was she like, stay away from Taylor? She, uh, <laughs> she was very excited to meet Taylor. Yeah, a little more excited than I, than I think uh, she needed to be, but that's okay. So she got to meet Taylor, and Taylor was awesome, and he's, he's fantastic. Uh, he's finishing up a project right now, and then is super fired up to get into this one. So uh, just a, one of those guys... Just, you want to have a beer with him, want to have a coffee with him, want to have a whiskey with him. Just a normal dude who's just super cool. And same with Chris and same with Antoine. Just normal guys who are just, just uh, you know, good people who you want to hang out with. And now they can choose their projects. That's the other cool part. So at a certain point, I think, in Hollywood, um, you know, you do certain things you have to and you got to do what you got to do. And then you get to this point where you can choose your project. So they're all about just making great shows with good people. And that's it. Looking cool. at this crowd right now, how many people were at your first book signing as compared to here? Because I can't even see the back of it. Oh, this is awesome. Thank you guys for being here. Absolutely. I sincerely appreciate it. Thank yeah. you guys. I mean, this, so is cool. a, this is an absolutely amazing turnout. Uh, how many people were at your first book signing compared to today? I think there's a... Were you at the first one? I think there were, there were a couple more people here than were at the first one. Um, in fact, there was one that I did 
really early on that uh, I went there and, and walked in and their chairs were set up like this and there was a table up here and one chair for me and and I walked in and zero zero people <laughs> and uh and then a homeless person came in and uh and sat right in the front and I was like I just sat down next to her and ended up buying her a coffee and a croissant and hanging out and gave her a book and you know, just talked to her for about 45 minutes, and that was it. It was the one, one person at that signing. Yeah. Usually when nobody shows up to the signing, the employees take off their badges. And, then and they, pretend? Yes, and pretend. Why didn't they pretend for me? I don't know. Man. And I'm looking at you. You were the Dang. first one. You didn't like him enough, Oh, my okay? goodness. Jeez. You love him now, though. You don't have to take off the badge tonight. <laughs> the line's going to be steep. No, this is Where awesome. were you earlier, by the way? I was signing, signing up there, yeah, a little room back there, signing a bunch of books, and uh, did two yesterday in Phoenix, and then we move on to Dallas tomorrow, and uh, it's go, go, go. I got to say hi to Rogan today, so that's always nice to stop by and say hi to him, and um, yeah, it's go, go, go for about a week and a half on this one. Gotcha. Yeah. Were you on Joe Rogan today? Yeah, so it'll drop tomorrow, so that'll be, that, that's always fun. You never know if it's going to be great or if you're going to get canceled. Yeah, you know? right? So it could go either way. I've heard fifty really fifty. Like I, I listened to Shane Gillis, and he was talking about his his first experience there. Obviously, you've been on there multiple times. Uh, Shane said he was nervous, and he bombed, and really? he thought it was horrific. And Joe would never call back, and all that other stuff. Really? What was your first experience like? So, first one was COVID, and I'm really glad because I've known Joe for a few years uh, prior uh, for some hunting circles, and I was kind of like, man, and we you know we text each other every now and again, just you know whatever, and I was kind of like, man, it'd be awesome if he invited me on, but you can't ask because then it like makes it weird, right? You right, right, like, right. You can't ask, um, and I'm so glad now that he did not ask me on until that third book hit the New York Times list, and the other the first two jumped on after that. So I'm so glad that he didn't ask me until after that happened because now no one can say, oh, the only reason you made the New York Times list is because Joe had. You know, you know, Joe, that must be nice. So I'm really glad that he didn't do that. Tucker didn't invite me on until afterward. Uh, and I, and also Chris didn't post about the show until after it hit the list as well. So beforehand, I would have appreciated that help. But uh, now I'm so thankful that they did not um, because it was it made things much more powerful because it was grassroots. Like I'm not coming from politics. I'm not coming from sports. I have no social media at all. And then I have this book coming out. And it was all about somebody taking a risk on me as a new author and then telling somebody at work or telling a friend or telling somebody across the dinner table or, uh, hey, calling their dad and saying, hey, I think you'd like this. And then it just went slowly like that and just built from this grassroots word of mouth. And I think that is much more uh, powerful than, let's say, having maybe a publisher that buys a bunch of, invests a ton off the bat and maybe puts ads everywhere. Like I had zero ads. It was all somebody taking a risk on me and then posting to their five followers or their 10 followers or a thousand followers. And then maybe two of those people do the same thing as after they pick it up or listen to it when Ray Porter doing the narration. And uh, so that's how it built. And I think that is, uh, is my, I, so now looking back, I feel so fortunate that that was the case because I think it made things much more powerful, much more meaningful to, to me. And I sincerely appreciate everybody who did that which is why i'm on social trying to say thank you at the end of the day my wife's asleep and i'm in there i'm just trying to hit that like button and say thank you to people because i sincerely appreciate all the support from the bottom of my heart because i writing is my passion my mission is taking care of my family that gives me purpose going forward and uh it wouldn't be possible without somebody taking a risk on me early on and telling a friend so so thank you guys appreciate it well i think you I, you, you can see it in the writing too but you did you put a lot of work in to deserve that in my opinion so any any time there's a product of any sort mentioned that your guy, the Reese is using or somebody else is using, you, you name drop one of your friend's companies. I try. Right? And Black it's, uh, Rifle yeah. or, or 
you know, the, the axe pinker, is that it? Yeah, yeah. Winkler knives. Winkler, sorry, yeah, me, yeah, so the axe. Yeah, and, it's uh, like everything. I've been a gear guy since I was a little kid. Just yep. for whatever reason, I was drawn to gear early on in life. And then the SEAL teams, it became much more important because now I want my guys to have the best gear we can possibly have in order to give us any little advantage over the mm-hmm. enemy. So I was going to SHOT Show just on my own dime sure, in yeah. Vegas, just trying to see what was out there in the private sector. And uh, through that, met a lot of people who then moved around to different companies or stayed at the, at the same one. But a lot of lifelong friendships from doing that because that was 2003 I started going to SHOT Show. I think. Uh, and then after the military, I'm still a gear guy today. I love my land cruisers. I love my gear. It's just, you know, it's just in me. So it's very natural for me to incorporate that into the, into the pages of the novels. And it also tells me something it's character development. It's not just like me putting the stuff in there because, um, you know, I think I'll get a free knife or I want to help out a buddy. It's character development because when I see somebody in there wearing a leather belt with a leather holster with a cocktail lock, 1911 and some, you know, old school NRA hat with the, with the, uh, you know, the, the eggs on the top like that. I remember those, the yeah. Free hats uh, that tells me something about them and their time frame and their training. And then I see somebody with a nylon belt and a, a Kydex holster and a uh, the striker fire pistol, something like that. Then that tells me something about them as well. Uh, Gator sunglasses versus Oakleys, uh, Courtney boots versus Schnees versus Solomon's. Like that all tells me a story. So I use those as character development tools. And what was so cool is for for Amazon to recognize that and be on board with it. So there's no product placement in the show. It's all stuff that I wanted to put in there that tells the part of, that tells that story. Uh, and I, I didn't know what to expect going in, but to have Amazon not even question that, and they never said, hey, why don't you put this, uh, you know, Coca-Cola wants to pay to put this in. It was a no, because yeah. it has to help develop these characters. Well, this branded world we live in now where people are just constantly inundated with marketing and stuff, it makes a lot of sense. It, it eliminates a lot of the expositional dialogue for sure. Like people to know what they're talking about yeah. for sure. It's like, yeah. I, and that's for, for guys like you that know, like, oh, I see. That tells yeah. me something about that, right. about that character. But I know? think everybody even, if they don't know what's happening, they, they still, it's... You perceive that, right? Yep. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Context yep. in there. You know, you context, obviously, for people that aren't familiar with all these uh, all these different items. Just drop my gear guide tonight. And also, I love dropping those gear guides because it gives little hints mm. about what's to come so people can see, oh, why is this rebreather on there? Why is this? Uh, that's that's odd. I haven't seen that before. And it's on there. And wonder how that plays into the story. So I have a great time with all, with all the gear. So that's on. That just, yeah, I dropped on that on the way here. Uh, yeah, from Rogan's, I was posting it as we, as we went. But uh, so I love the gear stuff. It's just very natural for me to do jack you've been on the show before you know we got some sponsors that put this shit wagon on the air first and foremost our title sponsor ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros 50 percent off the bundle package right now that's the adjustable base and the mattress combined together the most popular option is the split king there it comes with two remote controls instead of one you can go up see downsy all around these got usb ports flashlights the whole shebang uh, or if you already seen yourself, Russ, I have the adjustable base. I just need a mattress, maybe some uh, new pillows. Well, then guess what? You're getting two free pillows with a mattress right now. So feel free. 40% off with the promo code Drinking Bros on any other item in the entire store. That's anything. So if you want the sheets, uh, you want the cover, you want the weighted blankets, type in the promo code Drinking Bros at checkout for 40% off. Now, when you check out, you're going to see a three-year pay-as-you-go program. No interest as long as you have decent credit. Check that box, and all the deals that I mentioned are applicable with that. And you can walk out of there with a brand-new bedroom set for about 20 to 25 bucks a month. Head on over to GhostBed.com forward slash Drinking Bros today. Next up, we got mybookie.com. Promo code Drinking Bros doubles your first deposit all the way up to $1,000. 
If you listen to the golf show on Drinking Bros Sports, uh, or you're not subscribed to it, go go subscribe to it. It's on iTunes, Spotify, all the things over there. Uh, we gamble a lot. We gamble heavily over there. Uh, golf show, I picked Jason Day to win last week. He did win. We all got rich off the picks over there. Tonight is the Lakers against Denver. I've got Denver tonight mopping the floors with those old heads. Uh, we'll see what happens. But if you don't have a little quiche on some of these games going on in the backgrounds, is it even worth watching anymore? Not real sure these days. Turn your love of sports into your new side hustle by going over to mybookie.com and using that promo code Drinking Bros to double your first deposit up to $1,000. If you put in $100, Getting 200 back, 200, 400 back. You get the drill over there, but it's it does cap at $1,000. Put something on one of these games that makes it more enjoyable to watch. Go to mybookie.com. Use the promo code Drinking Bros to double that first deposit up to $1,000. Next up, we got hardafseltzer.com. Drinking it throughout the show, drinking it everywhere these days. Because let's face it, times are hard. We need a little bit of 8% seltzer in our lives. Times are hard, this seltzer is harder. I like that. I just came up with that right now. Uh, Get it shipped right to your house, or if you're in Florida or Tennessee, we are live in over 200 stores. Go to the store locator at hardafseltzer.com, type in your zip or city, and it'll take you to the closest store, or if you can just remember this one simple one, like Total Wines. We're in every single Total Wines in the state of Tennessee and the states of Florida right now, uh, except for the Panhandle. I don't think we're over there yet. Florida's a big state. Sorry, we're working on it, all right? That's us, not them. Load up. Summer's here. It's time to fucking party. No carbs, no sugars. All the new flavors are out. The pina colada, the watermelon, peach, blue raz. Get a variety pack. It helps support the show. It helps support us. Uh, And if you don't live in one of those states or one of those surrounding states, we ship right to your house. 40 different states. Go to hardafseltzer.com. Buy and buy one case, which is 24 cans, or two cases, which is 48 cans, and you'll save a little bit of money on shipping. Go to hardafseltzer.com today. Sponsor-wise, does it get any better than HelloFresh? Hello! HelloFresh! I see you. I've been eating them with my wife for, man, I want to say three to four years now. Uh, We have it Monday through Thursday, maybe Friday, depending upon what the kids want to do. But it is the freshest ingredients you can get delivered right to your doorstep. Uh, And it's even cold. It's even chilled for you. So you can pop it right out of the box and into the fridge. Look, kids. Uh, If you're like me and you're going to the grocery store a few times a week and you're noticing that bill creeping up into triple digits, it's because you're trying to buy fresh food for your family. It's not sweet. However, HelloFresh makes it a lot easier by doing it for you. These are fresh meals with unbelievably fresh ingredients that get shipped right to your house with a little tiny card that tells you how to cook it. Uh, Some meals you can even do in like 15 minutes. Some of the steaks a little longer, but uh, I'm not kidding, kids. I've had it Monday through Thursday or Friday for pretty much the last three or four years of my life. I'm a gigantic fan of them, but I never got a savings like this. 
this is HelloFresh.com slash DrinkingBros16, where you use the code DrinkingBros16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. I'm going to say that one more time because you're getting 16 free meals here. Nobody can offer you that. Not in podcasts and certainly not in life. How they're doing it, I'm not sure, but good on them. I love the food. It's the best in the biz. And right now you can get 16 free meals by going to HelloFresh.com slash DrinkingBros16 and use the code DrinkingBros16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Gigantic fan of these guys. There's a reason why HelloFresh's tagline is America's number one meal kit. It's because they are. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals for 2023, why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for your phone bill? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year as the first company to sell premium wireless service online only. Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save you a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. I saw the commercials with Ryan Reynolds and I was like, I'll give it a go. My service sucks here anyways with AT&T, so I switched. It's been pretty easy over there. For people looking for extra savings this year, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month by going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail. Mint Mobile passes significant savings to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and switch easily in minutes with eSIM. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless service plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash drinking bros. That is mintmobile.com slash drinking bros. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash drinking bros. Yeah, for me, when I see a guy wearing Carhartt or a girl wearing Carhartt, that means a lot to me, you know? It means you probably don't do Carhartt shit. When you see them walk into yeah, that Olive Garden, yeah, yeah, and they're, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, that's just places to put the, uh, the breadsticks. Because now it's become trendy, you know, uh, wearing veteran gear, uh, you know, military, bow hunting, all that stuff through Rogan. Yeah. Um, th- that has become trendy and cool. Uh, you do a great job of staying away from the trends and using things that you use in real life. Yeah. And that's just simply from knowing you. And again, I want to point out to the audience, you don't have any brand deals with any of these companies, correct? No, for the, uh, the podcast, uh, there's a, a couple for the podcast, but that's separate. And I want to make sure that like Instagram, gear guides, all those things stay all pure. Um, so that's, uh, so there's no like, you know, one has to wonder why I'm posting something on Instagram. It's just because I like it or it's, uh, or it's developing this character or whatever else. And so I like to keep that stuff pure. Like I don't need a revenue stream from that. Uh, it's just, it's just fun for me to do and to keep and to keep pure. And, and, and speaking of product placement, uh, I use PSE uh, bows in Savage Sun in my third novel. And at yesterday's book signing at Poison Pen in Scottsdale, there's Pete Shepley. So started PSE bows right there in the front row there to support. And it was so cool. I mean, it was a surprise to see him there. And that was just, that was really cool for me to see such a legend in the archery community right there in the front row at that signing. That was pretty cool. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. I'm just glad you're not turning into a Kardashian. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't want to see placements all over, all throughout the book. Yeah, I think we're good. A lip gloss was dropped. Yeah, oh, you my gosh. Come out with your own makeup line. She became a billionaire. Why not? Oh, well, maybe I'll rethink my approach to this then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm always willing to adapt, you know, just like on the battlefield, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Got to capitalize on momentum. Got to look for gaps position, in the... Yeah. Exactly. You've been paying attention. Oh, oh. I love it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, look for gaps in those enemies' defenses, and then, you know, got to adapt and got to adapt quicker than the enemy. Not that the Kardashians are our enemy, but if you're looking at it, if you were looking at it that way, you got to adapt. Yeah, we'll see. You got to adapt. What do you tell a young author out there who wants to become the next Jack Carr? Because I'm sure that's odd, Um, especially when it's a passion, something you've been doing your whole life. You spent so much of your own time, your own money uh, into building this brand, building yourself as an author. Now you have a, a whole generation that has grown up reading your books, wanting to become you. What do you tell those guys? Well, a little bit, it's a little bit crazy going back a tiny bit to uh, being at a book signing and have people come up and say they joined the military because of you. Because the first book came out in 2018. So if somebody read that at age 16, 17, 18, now they're a few years in to their yeah. time in uniform. And I talked to David Morell about this. He created Rambo back in 1972 with First Blood with his debut novel. And he's gone on USO tours. He's been to Walter Reed. And he's talked to guys in, like, in the burn unit or missing arms and legs that have said, hey, I joined the military because of Rambo, because of this character you created. So I've had conversations with him about that. But last book tour was the first one because the two previous were COVID. And then the two before that, I was just the first and the second one. So people reading it wouldn't have had a chance to go through boot camp, do something, and then come to a book signing. So last one was the first time that uh, that, that happened. So that was that was uh, was, was uh, humbling, humbling to uh, to have that happen. And it happened multiple times on last tour. But as far as advice goes, I got some advice from Brad Thor when I was starting out, and he got this advice from an author uh, that was um, uh, from the '70s, and I, I forget that the name right now. But he said, "Give yourself permission to write a bad chapter." And I took that to, hey, give myself permission to write a bad sentence, write a bad chapter, uh, write a bad book, get it done, and then go back and make it great. So, uh, so I did like that advice, and to hear it from somebody like that so early on, for whatever reason, was extremely liberating. So it's uh, don't get stuck, meaning don't sit there and say, oh, this sentence is awful, this is terrible, how do I fix this sentence, or this chapter is terrible, this paragraph is terrible, I'm going to spend the next month trying to get this right. No, keep going. Just keep going. Give yourself permission to write a bad paragraph. It's okay. Move on to the next one. Tell this story. And also, don't worry about those critics. Don't worry about thinking about things like an agent or a publisher or what's trending or what reviews you've seen of other people's novels or your audience. Have it be all about the story. It has to be about the story. Honor that story by not worrying about those other things and make it the best you can possibly get it and then start worrying about those other things like agents and publishers. Yeah, that was, uh, I remember the, I guess the week prior to the show coming out, a lot of the media was like, oh, it's, it's just war porn and revenge porn, and you're not going to like this. And then it came out, everyone was like, yeah, this is dope. So, Well, the, some, the critics weren't big fans. So if you want uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the, uh, the audience score is up there in the high 90s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what, that's it's at 97 it. right it's, now. Is it? Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So that's, that, I mean, that means a ton. Uh, and then the, the, what, the critic score is probably in the I think it was 30s. 16 or something 16? at one point. But yeah. it went back <laughs> up. Fantastic. After, after they kind of got shamed a little bit for being jackasses, it went back up a little bit. It, it was down to 16 at some yeah. point. I'm looking at those two numbers. I'm like, that says everything I need to know about this. Uh, yeah, exactly. Those numbers are very telling. And uh, if it's the opposite, you're probably not going to like it. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. 98% critics it's and be 16% a black and percent white. audience. Like, mm, yeah, it'll be a black you know, and white film with French it, uh, Yeah, and it's just, yeah. you know, that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. But And some people do make films 
films and shows for those those critics because they're looking for awards or whatever else and you know that's that's okay there's something there for everybody but uh, it was fun to go and read some of those reviews like particularly the Daily Beast one and uh, then go on Tucker and be able to talk about it and just have some fun with it and essentially just read their own words back to them and uh, say things like that didn't seem too like too much fun over there at the Daily Beast because uh, it doesn't uh, but it was just so nasty but when you read it back with kind of having a little fun with it uh, I had a great time reading some of those negative yeah. reviews on Tucker especially well the Daily Beast won't exist in a couple of months probably so yeah no, they're all going down yeah. Vice filed for bankruptcy today oh is so, that right yes no. oh wow uh, it's all those people who wrote negative reviews uh, they could be asking you for a job soon, friend. Interesting. I'm going to have to look into it. I'm not going to gloat over it, but, you know. No, hey. not at all. But, but uh, you, you know, know, be kind. Be kind. And, and the, whole, the whole story about how the show even came to be is uh, just about doing something, which I didn't even look at it at the time as being nice. It was just doing something. So uh, a friend of mine was getting out of the, uh, I didn't really know him that well at the time, but he was getting out of the military. And uh, I heard he was getting out. He was a solid operator, E6 at the time. And I find him on the Bud's Grinder where he was an instructor instructor and I was the operations officer on my on my way out in a couple like a year and a year and a half or so and uh, I ran into him and said hey man come just drop by my office when you get a chance and we'll talk about what your plans are and uh, happy to help any way I can and he came to my office and we, we talked about it I introduced him to some people in the private sector and followed up a little bit later and then I totally forgot all about it and then he called me yeah, six or seven months before the first book came out and so I hadn't talked to him in five years and asked if I remembered him and it was Jared Shaw the guy that I talked about earlier and uh, he said hey man I always wanted to call and thank you for what you did for me and the SEAL teams. And, and I said, what was that? I didn't even remember. And he told me about it. And, and, uh, and I said, well, hey man, how's it going? And he told me, and he said, hey, I heard you have a book coming out. And I said, yeah, it's coming out in a few months. I can give you a galley copy, which is like a rough draft. I can send that to you if you'd like. And, and he said, yeah, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I said, no problem. Who's that? And he said, uh, Chris Pratt. I was like, oh, that's very convenient for me because that's who I decided should play this role as I was writing it. So Really? Yeah. That was the guy you had settled on. Yeah. Well, who else would it be? That's amazing. And this uh, was look, he's busy. I yeah, mean, he's well, doing... this was before he was an A-lister. So this was back. Uh, so he'd been uh, Andy Dwyer on Parks and Rec, and uh, then he played a SEAL operator in Zero Dark Thirty, a mm. smaller role. So I saw that transition from Andy Dwyer ah. to the SEAL operator. And of course, this is me in my office off our bedroom in Coronado, California, in our rental, with it's still another year and a half to go in the SEAL teams as I'm writing this thing. No connections to Hollywood, no connections to publishing, don't know any agents, uh, nothing at all. And I thought Chris Pratt's a guy who needs to do this because he had that kid has potential and he seems like a great guy on and off screen. So, and then I was like, well, as long as I'm choosing my, my main actor here, I should probably choose my director. So I thought Antoine Fuqua, he is the guy I love training day, love tears of the sun point of impact. Uh, well shooter, which is based on the book point of impact. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought Antoine will direct. And then I looked in the back of books by Brad Thorne, Vince Flynn, and I saw them thanking someone named Emily Bessler at Simon and Schuster. Her, she has her own imprint of Atria books, Emily Bessler books. And, so I decided that Emily would be my publisher and editor, and uh, she is. And then me and Chris and Antoine are all executive producers on this thing, and it's, uh, it's a great team. Can you buy a lottery ticket for us tonight? Because <laughs> this is all too convenient. I mean, that's that's, it, that never happens. You understand that, right? I, people like to tell me that this never happens, especially in Hollywood. They're yes. like, you realize this never happens, to, to, don't you? But, but it all comes back to so like, it's doing that 
it wasn't even a favor. It was nothing Machiavellian about it, uh, doing that for Jared. And then another friend who had helped Brad Thor out on a couple of the SEAL aspects of a couple of his novels uh, connected me with Brad early on. And uh, Brad wanted to hear why I wanted to be an author. And so I told him and about my mom being a librarian and reading all these books growing up by Tom Clancy and Nelson DeMille and A.J. Quinnell and J.C. Pollock and Mark Olden and Stephen Hunter and Louis L'Amour. And, uh, and we talked a little bit and then he had to get back to work. And he said, okay, quiet. Uh, but it, your friend told me some things you did in the SEAL team. Teams. And as a thank you for those things, I'm going to let Simon and Schuster know this book is coming if you write it. And I was about four months into it at that time. And he said, uh, when's it going to be done? And I said, you're from today. And he said, okay, don't call me in the meantime. I'm not going to give you any advice. I'm not going to uh, read any chapters for you. But if you finish this thing, I can let Simon and Schuster know it's coming. I'm not going to, I can't promise they'll even open the package or that they'll read a sentence or certainly that they'll like it, but I can let them know as a thank you. And, uh, but that's all based on in the, in the military, really your reputation is your currency and your reputation is based on your character. So if you see to your character, your reputation will take care of itself. Uh, so without that, without having just looked at every day as trying to be the best leader and operator I possibly could, I wouldn't have had that relationship with this guy who ended up knowing Brad Thor and recommending that Brad get on a call with me. And so it's all, you know, comes back to some of those baseline and something I try to tell the, tell the kids, which is uh, never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day and not for a Machiavellian reason, but just because it's uh, you know, why not? Why not? Sure. Uh, but in your future writings, uh, because you've had so much experience in television now uh, and let's face it, one whole season, especially how intense that was, that one is in particular, that's a, a wealth of experience uh, out there, and it's, it's incredible. Does that influence your writing and starting to think of, all right, in the nonfiction series, who I want to play these characters as you're going to go into writing them? Well, in the, in the fiction side of the house, so we started filming this while I was finishing up The Devil's Hand. And uh, so you can tell if you have read, if you, if you walk into it with that in mind and read In the Blood and this one, so the two that came out after The Devil's Hand, you will definitely be able to tell if you've watched the show how the show influenced the books. Uh, and I didn't expect that going in, but it was, just, it was just natural because now these characters are brought to life. Mm. I'm learning more about writing and screenwriting side of the house, and that certainly impacted these last two books, no doubt about it. You think yeah. you're using more visuals now? Setting the scene more? What, what, what is it that changed, you think? It's a relationship between some of the characters, yeah. uh, like, uh, like Chris Pratt being there, hiking up with his daughter, which is not really part. It's a, the first chapter in my book, but uh, there's a different relationship between him and his family as we go through the show than there is in, in the book. Uh, there's different relationships between him and some of the guys that he uh, brings with him, like to that last scene when he's on the boat and he goes over the side. He says, I'm not alone. And he has those two guys that were, were killed in the first episode with him. Uh, and they go over the side of the boat. But he's still alone, obviously, but they're still a part of him. So, uh, so that, those are the ones that really kind of stuck with me as being powerful scenes on the script and in the, on the page and then on the screen when I saw it. So those in particular have influenced uh, some chapters and a couple of relationships and certainly paragraphs uh, strewn throughout the last two novels, no doubt about it. Well, a lot of people who've worked in TV and then they go back to writing books say that it helps them influence uh, dialogue and more dialogue-driven mm -hmm. chapters. Uh, was that the case for you? Not really, because I always love the dialogue, and, uh, and I love getting to know characters through dialogue. So let's say when I start one, I have, I know the recurring characters, I know them already, but essentially most books, James Reese has killed all the bad guys in the previous one, so I have to have a whole new set of bad guys. So I write up a <laughs> list of the names so that I know, like I can visually see, okay, that name sounds too familiar to this name, I'm going to tweak that, okay, especially the Russian names. Hard to get different sounding Russian names, but so I have that written down, and I'll have their position, like, okay, this guy's the head of the New York Bratva, so the, uh, the Russian mafia, this guy 
guys like Russian intelligence. So I have that, but I don't know them yet. And I don't get to know them until they're in conversation with other characters in the book. And so for me, I'm getting to know them for the first time, just like the reader is in those cases. So I love writing dialogue. I've always loved writing dialogue, but it is different than, uh, than a script because in a script you have a certain amount of lines to portray a certain amount of things. And an actor can do a certain amount to portray what you need to portray to move on to the next one. In a book, I can go on for five, six, seven pages just because I'm having fun with these two characters and very different than, than a script in these types of scripts. Anyway, when you have a budget and a timeline and all the rest of it, everything that comes in, to putting that episode together very different than a book in a book i can just blow up the golden gate bridge if i feel like it now on a script you have budgets and that might not happen in one of these shows you have to take all that into account so it's they're completely different animals but for me it's uh they've been very complimentary so uh, and i love i love both well you know where the next question is going then are you starting to write for your favorite actors is there a, a group of actors in your mind as you're writing these books where you're like you know what John Malkovich would be great in this next book, playing this next character. I can write it similar to his style. Oh, very interesting that you brought that person up because I'll tell you, tell you later something about that. But uh, oh, you can't tell us on camera. No, 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 okay. no, definitely not. But uh, welcome, John Malkovich. Hey! About kidding. No, it'd be great if he was. It'd be great if he was. <laughs> no, it's uh, so I don't. I pictured Chris Pratt playing the role. I didn't picture James Reese as Chris Pratt. If you understand the distinction mm-hmm. there, so uh, so that's the way I thought of that. And I do think not every character, but some of them I do think of actors in the role. I'm a child of the '80s, so it's very natural for me to think of actors as these. characters. Characters, not all of them, but uh, but some of them, and uh, and that's fun fun for me to do. But what was also cool about uh, about being on on set and get to meet all these people. Everybody that I met on that show, uh, actor wise, was just normal. It was just awesome. Jean Triplehorn, incredible. She was so nice. She was amazing. Uh, Lamonica Garrett, who was in 1883, right after our show, went and filmed that. Uh, such a solid dude, just awesome. So we're we're friends. With all I'm friends with all these people today, but they're just normal. You want to sit down and have beer with them, coffee, you know, just hang out. And uh, that really stood out to me is just how, how normal. Because a lot of the times you see somebody in Hollywood get up there and give a speech at the Golden Globes or the Oscars, and you're like, Ooh, wow, that's crazy. But you don't realize that there are 350 people, part of this production, who are just trying to put dinner on the table for their family and are just hardworking Americans and just want to be the best that they can be, whether it's hair and makeup or it's stunt coordinator or mobility person or whatever it is. They just want to be the best they can possibly be, do that job, and then move on to the next one to provide for their family. Uh, and we don't think about all those people behind the scenes when you see somebody get up and say something crazy at the Oscars. And then when people say, oh, I'm never going to watch that person again, they're a nut. Well, there's 350 50 other people that uh, a large percentage of are not nuts and uh, and and they're all part of this production and without any of them in there this thing doesn't exist so I kind of look at things more in their totality now and I was also very forgiving always when I would see something and see like eh, okay is that uh, is that pistol ever going to run out of ammo or whatever it is I was always very forgiving like I'm going to try to go with this um, <laughs> but now I'm even more forgiving because now I see how many opportunities there are for things to completely go off the rails so another takeaway was that anything gets made in Hollywood one and two that anything good gets made in Hollywood because there are so many people involved so many opportunities for things to mess up and then even if you think you did a good job and you've done it and now you're in post-production and everybody's moved on to other projects except for somebody in the editing room with no background in military law enforcement they're like oh this one looks much cooler putting that in there and they just don't know like you're just covering your buddy with the rifle as you're coming into the room or whatever it just looked cool to this person in post-production but there's no military law enforcement or special you know advisors in there and it just makes it into the final cut and you're like oh so i see so now i'm much more forgiving and i was forgiving before but now now even more so 
And then even when it does come out, then you have assholes like the Daily Beast who are like, I hate it. <laughs> yeah, they hate it for other reasons, though. Not, uh, yeah, they have, they don't know. I have no idea about the tactics or the uh, the the Limitless magazine and the M4 or whatever it might be. Uh, so they, yeah, they, they hate it for they hate it for all the other reasons. Yeah, you know? I, I know goes. you're a big family man. Uh, what do your wife and kids think of your success? They are completely unimpressed by uh, <laughs> by any of it. Every parent out there will, will know what I'm talking about here. They uh, they get impressed the kids for like 30 seconds or a minute when Chris Pratt sends them a little like happy birthday video or something like that and, and sends it and and they get to watch that. So I'm cool for about that 30 seconds, maybe 32 seconds if that's. Uh, it, but then back to being dead. Well, even Chris's you know? oldest son is more of a fan of Captain America than him. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he posted all that. What can you do? A couple years ago, what are you going to do? What can yeah. you do? So yeah, it's uh, it's just just how it goes, but. Uh, yeah, we have three kiddos, wife, dog, juggling all that stuff. And it's, uh, yeah, constant chaos around the house, which is why I don't sleep much, why I don't, uh, yeah, the nutrition and all the other stuff is just falling off the, because of that. But that's, you know, I know I'll look back once the kids are gone and things are calm and I have a more sane schedule that I'll miss those interruptions. So I try to, uh, try to enjoy them for, uh, you know, for what they are. And I always, you know, if any kid knocks on my door, one of the, one of the kids or the dog barks or whatever, I'm just happy to, to put everything down and, and take that interruption as part of it, knowing that, the book could take six months to write, but with all that, it's going to take like uh, no, 13, 14, 15 months yeah. to write. And that's just, that's just the stage we're in. And then uh, uh, I know I'll miss it one day, so I embrace it now. And I want to remind the audience, you didn't move to Hollywood. You're still in Salt Lake City, right? Park City, yeah, just out of Salt Lake. And uh, so we started going to Park City uh, during my last couple of years in the military. I built up so much leave over the preceding 16, 17, 18 years. Uh, and we never really took it. We took a day here, a day there, whenever, you know, but... Not much. And it built up because the pendulum had to be on the side of the team. And that's just how it has to be. Um, and to have a spouse that understood that, my wife to understand that, she, she's all on board. But knowing that you're going to be downrange, you're going to be meeting, making these decisions that are going to affect not only your best friends to your right and left, but your teammates also to your right and left. Um, and you have to solely be, you can't leave anything on the field. So when I'm at home, I'm reading about warfare. I'm reading about tactics. I'm reading lessons learned. I'm reading about insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. I'm training. Even if I'm uh, on, on a weekend, I'm driving up to a range in Riverside so I can train with, let's say, a Larry Vickers or a Pat McNamara or somebody that's coming through town uh, so that I can just make myself that much sharper so that if something happens downrange, I know that I didn't leave anything. I can't look back and I'll say, if only I had spent that one more round on the range, if only I'd done that obstacle course a few more times, if only we'd done that field training exercise one more time just to get it right. Um, so I didn't have any of those regrets because I was all in all the time on the team. Um, but when I got out, the hope is that that pendulum swings back towards the family. And, uh, and so that's, that's, you know, where it is now. It's, uh, the family is, is forefront, but you're also building a business as you're doing this. You're doing all, you're the CEO, the CFO, the CMO, the social media manager. Uh, you're building the product. You're doing all those things as an author these days. So it's busy, but uh, any mistakes that I make? I can fix them tomorrow. I can fix them in a week. Uh, I can come back and edit. So it's not the same thing as making a mistake on the battlefield that's going to haunt you forever. So, um, so it's very different. Even though I'm solving problems aggressively on the page, just like I was downrange, creatively and aggressively, uh, here on the page, yeah, I can go back to it. And it's okay. The consequences of screwing up are a lot less dire. So when we were getting out, we wanted to make a physical and psychological break with the military just because I had saw so many people have a hard time leaving it behind. So we packed up and, and went to Park City because we'd started taking some leave going up there during my last couple of years and decided that, uh, hey, let's, uh, let's raise our kids in a ski town. Let's, let's head up to the mountains. Well, look, congratulations on all your success. Uh, we want to thank everybody for coming out. 
Uh, Only the Dead is out now. Did you, you signed a bunch of copies back there. Yep. Does everybody get a copy tonight? Yeah. I'm not how sure how this work? works. I hope so. How but, does uh, that work? Yeah, let me take a picture of this because this is cool. I want to show my wife and kids that... Uh, they're yeah. not going to be impressed. Yeah, they're not going to be impressed, but maybe someday. Here maybe we go. Someday Thanks, guys. they will. Thanks for being here. There we go. Let's, Let's take a little give video. A nice thumbs up. You there guys, thank you so much for being here. Sincerely appreciated. This is awesome. Nice. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Nice. Yes. Well, we want to give a special thanks to Barnes & Noble for having us tonight, uh, Jack Carr for inviting us to do this interview tonight and sharing your time with us. We know you're an extremely busy guy. You've always made time uh, for your fans, your audience, and for your family. Uh, we are grateful to you, and uh, your talent is unmatched out there. Uh, looking forward to this book and many, many more, my friend. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you guys for all you do, too. I love Keep speaking the truth. Absolutely. All we right. will. Thanks. We will. Thank you. Thank you for coming out tonight, everybody.